All right, well, uh, open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 2, all right? Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, uh, this week I read a story that was uh, a bit of an uncomfortable, unusual story, and it was also sort of a tragic story as well, about a situation that happened on a flight uh, a couple of years ago. And it was a long flight. It was going over one of the oceans, and so it was a a really long flight that people were on. And uh, unfortunately, a passenger on that flight had a heart attack and ended up dying on the flight. And the flight crew crew and some of the passengers, they did kind of their best they could to, 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 get, to, to try to resuscitate him. And after a little while, they conceded that this man had died and, uh, and they, they kind of stopped the resuscitation efforts. Uh, but they were flying over an ocean and there wasn't really like the next place they could stop to drop off the body. This was also pre-COVID and so the plane was just packed. Every seat was full. There was no room on the plane to put the body and so they did what they thought was a reasonable thing to do and they buckled this man back into his seat uh, for the rest of the flight. Okay, Um, now the man that was writing about this was the guy sitting next to him which you can imagine would have been a little uncomfortable to sit the rest of the flight next to someone who has just died. I mean, I don't know about you. I I work some in the medical field, so I'm around some, you know, people that, that have passed away or that are dying or things like that. But I think for most of us, we would be a bit uncomfortable uh, because most of us are not used to being around dead bodies, right? We, we live in a culture that we, for the most part, have contracted out and kind of hired out a lot of the work that goes along with death and dying, and therefore we are just not exposed to death very often. Uh, but then 2020 happened, and all of a sudden everyone is made aware uh, that people are, that people die, that people, that this is a thing. And, and everyone in the medical field is kind of like, yeah, guys, like this This has been a thing, right? People have been dying. This has been a long problem for humanity of of infectious disease and and cancers and death, and it's tragic, but people have been dying. This has been a long-term problem for humanity that people die. And you're probably thinking, man, I'm glad I got up to come to church this morning. Uh, We're off to a good start. I think this is going to be both positive and encouraging. Uh, I'm glad that I'm here. But hang hang with me, okay? Hang with me. We will get to that. Uh, But you see, the, the reason that we don't like to bring up the idea of death is because we all, to some extent or another, have an underlying fear of death. We do. It's It's there. There's this underlying fear of death, and the Bible says that that fear of death enslaves us. It enslaves us. And this morning, I believe that Jesus wants to deliver us out of our fear of death. Okay? And, and so, but, but I do recognize that death is kind of a, a scary thing. It's a scary experience. Uh, and that it's for a lot of reasons that it can, it can be a little frightening. Uh, the first is that there's a lot of unknown about it. I mean, it's something that none of us have uh, done before. Right? It's, it's something that none of us have personally experienced. And so there's a lot of unknown and unfamiliarity about, about dying and what that will be like. 
It also sometimes maybe frightens us because it can feel like we have no control over it. Uh, and we like to feel like we have control. Uh, and, and death can make us feel like we have no control. Uh, we could also be fearful about dying because we fear about what's going to happen to our loved ones that are left behind, whether it's our spouses or our kids or things like that. Or maybe you're not fearful about yourself dying at all. Maybe you've come to peace with that. But maybe you're fearful of a loved one passing away or a close friend or something like that. And so we all kind of have this underlying fear of death for lots of dif different reasons. And it can manifest itself in multiple ways. Now, sometimes it is kind of the obvious, like the, the, the person who's just fixated on that moment that they will die, and they live in constant fear of that, okay? And I think that's called uh, thanatophobia. It's a new word I learned this week, okay? Uh, but there is kind of that obvious, hey, I'm just worried, I'm fixated on that moment of death. But oftentimes, and I would say for the most majority of us, that's not the case, I think oftentimes there are some more subtle ways that kind of manifest themselves in our life that show that we have this underlying fear of death. For example, you have the people um, that will do anything and everything uh, uh, to, to preserve their health at all costs, okay? And this could be a subtle sign of someone having an underlying fear of death. Now, let me clarify, because I think there is a good way to be a good steward of the health and the body that God has given you. I think we should be good stewards of that and try to take care of ourselves. But I'm talking about the person who's obsessed with self-preservation and will spend all of their time and all of their energy and all their money and everything they can trying to preserve themselves as long as they can out of an underlying fear of death. Or then you have the people, you know, another subtle sign of an underlying fear of death is when a person only wants to do what's familiar to them. Like they, they don't at all want to venture out into the unfamiliar or the unknown. Whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's traveling, like riding in an airplane, whether it's switching jobs, whether it's going to a new place, they don't want to go to any unfamiliar or unknown territory, many times because of fear, and often it's an underlying fear of death. Another subtle sign of an underlying fear of death is the person who maybe goes beyond just biblical stewardship and they become greedy and stingy with their money and with their time and with their energy because they want to store up enough and all they have so that they can leave enough for their loved ones when they die. An underlying fear of death can also show itself up in a person who lives a scattered, uncommitted life, going from one pleasure and one experience to the next, never committing to anything or to anyone out of a fear of missing out. Right? You guys have heard of that fear of missing out. That fear of missing out is often a fear of missing out on pleasure before they die. And so this is someone who will quickly get out of marriage when it stops making them happy, or they will get out of a job when the work becomes just too hard, or they will get out of a friendship when it's not as fun as it used to be because they have a fear of missing out on all this other pleasure that they can have before they die. Now, all those can be subtle signs of a fear of missing out, but I would say the most common way that our fear of death shows itself is simply by just a complete denial of it, 
right? We just, we just live in denial. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to think about it. We're just going to deny that it's even there. And this is kind of the best advice that the world can give, okay? So one psychologist offers this advice to her patients. She tells her patients who struggle with a fear of death to write a bucket list with all the amazing things that they want to do. And she says, uh, if you are busy living, you won't have time to worry about dying, So if you're looking for kind of a non-biblical advice on what to do with that underlying fear of death, that's kind of the best I could find, right? Like just, just be as busy as you can and try not to think about it. Martin Luther described that way of thinking as sinners running backwards towards an open grave. In reality, that is what's happening. Luther said that most people are unable to face death but are inevitably moving straight at it. We are running backwards towards an open grave. But church, there is a better way. There is a better way. All right, so if you're in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, church, as we come to God's word this morning, we are going to see what Jesus has done, what he's doing, and what he will always do to deliver us from our fear of death. Okay, our t- uh, the passage this morning is going to show us what Jesus has done, what he is doing, and what he will always do to deliver us from our fear of death. Let me pray for our time and we'll jump into the passage. Father God, we do thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. But God, I come, I come weak and needy to the task. And uh, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask, uh, Spirit, that you would lead and guide me, uh, that you would help me make clear uh, your truth, that, Lord, this, in, that this, this word would not just be informing us, God, but that it would be transforming us. I ask that it would humble us, that it would stir up in us a love for you and a love for one another. And we ask that through all that is said and done, that you would be glorified. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, look with me first. Hebrews 2, verse 14. We're going to look at what Jesus has done to deliver us from the fear of death. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Okay, the start of verse 14 there, as you're looking at it, it again points to this beautiful doctrine of the incarnation that we've been learning about all through Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus is God who put on flesh. All right, fully God, fully man, he became like one of us. And he had to become like one of us in order to redeem us. Right? If he was trying to redeem angels, uh, he would have become like one of them. But no, he was, it was his image bearers. It was humanity that he came to redeem. And therefore, he put on humanity to redeem humanity. Look then at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, who are the offspring of Abraham? All right? Is that, is that every single person that has ever lived on the earth? Is that, is that only people that can, you know, get on Ancestry.com and, and find their lineage to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who are the offspring of Abraham? 
And Paul in Galatians 3, verse 7, gives some clarity on this, which we'll have up on the screen. He writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Always remember, whether Old or New Testament, it's always been by faith that someone is a true son of Abraham. Paul later then says in Galatians 3.29, he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So if your faith is in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, a part of the people of God who Christ came to redeem. All right, so that's, we're still in this category of what Jesus has done. Number one, what has he done to deliver us from our fear of death? Number one, he became one of us. He became one of us. Number two, he destroyed the work of the devil. Now, what does that word destroy mean? Because it seems like, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it seems like to me that the devil is still prowling, so to speak, that the devil is still working, that the enemy is still doing some things. So what does this mean to say that Jesus destroyed the work of the devil? Well, this word destroy here does not mean to annihilate or to cause someone to cease to exist. Okay, that is not the case with this word destroy. This word destroy means to render powerless or ineffective. To render powerless or ineffective. You see, through Christ's death on the cross, the enemy has been disarmed, he's been defeated, he's been rendered powerless and ineffective in relation to God's people. The devil has not ceased to exist, but Jesus' death on the cross was that death blow to the head. You remember in Genesis 3, when God promises humanity that an offspring is going to come from Eve that will crush the, the serpent's head. That is what happened on the cross. All right, The location that Jesus was crucified was Mount Golgotha. Golgotha was Aramaic for the place of a skull. And it was named that because this mountain, if you stood back and looked at the mountain, it looked like a skull. All right, So envision Jesus being crucified on this mountain, and it gives you a really cool imagery and picture of what is actually happening on a deeper spiritual level. Because on the cross, Jesus delivered the death blow to the serpent's head. All right, On the cross, it was like God driving a stake through the serpent's skull. That was the death blow, and it was through the death of Christ that he might destroy the devil, that he might render him powerless or ineffective in relation to God's people. And the passage then goes on to say that this devil, he has the power of death. Now what, now what does that mean? We need to clarify that, that the devil has the power of death. Because what that's not saying, that's not saying that the devil has the authority to say who dies and who lives. Uh, only God has that power. Only God has that authority. We see the enemy all throughout Scripture. He is not on equal ground with God. Uh, he is a creation. God is creator. And all throughout the Bible, we see he has to ask God's permission, and he has to operate under God's sovereignty and his providence. So to say that he has the power of death is not to say that he's got kind of this authority about who dies or who, who lives. But what this is getting at is that when Christ died for the sins of his people, he took away the one weapon that the enemy could effectively use against God's people. 
right? When, when Christ died for the sins of his people, he took away the one weapon that the devil could use effectively against God's people, and that weapon was unforgiven sin. That was the one weapon that Satan kind of had on us, right? He could kind of hold that over us. Our enemy is, is known as the accuser. He's known as the slanderer. He's known as kind of the prosecutor of God's people. And one of the reasons that we all fear death to some degree or another is because we know deep down that after we die, we will have to face the Lord. And without Christ, we know the enemy has got a pretty good case against us. <laughs> like that prosecutor, I mean, apart from Christ, like he, he's got a case. He can build a case against me in light of a holy God. But, oh, church, look to the cross and see that your Savior has taken your sin upon himself and given you his righteousness so that all your sin, past, present, and future, would be forgiven and the accuser would be unable to bring any accusations against you. Jesus has destroyed the work of the devil. He's disarmed him, rendered him powerless. He's got nothing to accuse you of when you face the Lord. And how has Jesus done this? Well, by making propitiation. And Joni was gracious enough to wear her propitiation t-shirt. Which I don't know how many people have propitiation t-shirts, but, I mean, that's a big deal. Look back at Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted as well. All right, so, so we're still in this category of what Jesus has done to, fear, uh, to deliver us from our fear of death. Number one, he became one of us. Number two, he destroyed the work of the devil. And number three, he has made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, to make propitiation for the sins of the people means to appease the wrath of God. To appease the wrath of God. Because, listen, because our God is just... Because our God is holy, because he is righteous, our sin deserved punishment. It deserved wrath. But our God is so good. Our God is so gracious. Our God is so loving that he put on flesh and allowed the wrath to be poured out on himself. The wrath of God was fully satisfied and appeased for the sins of his people. And so since Christ is our propitiation, that wrath that we deserved has been appeased. It's been turned aside. And now in Christ, we no longer expect wrath, but now we only expect favor from God. Jesus Christ completely satisfied the wrath of the sins of his people. No more wrath. And... Doesn't this bring us then great comfort, church? To, to be able to face some of the, the difficulties of life and some of the hardships and the things that come against us and to know that this is not God's wrath. 
I mean, we don't always know why certain things happen. Uh, I can't always explain why God does what he does or why God allows what he allows. But this is what I know. In Christ, all right, in Christ, for those of you in Christ, whatever is coming against you, whatever hardship or trial or persecution or pain or suffering you are experiencing, that is not God's wrath. That is not God's wrath. He's not getting even with you. He's not getting you back for what you've done. Karma is not a biblical concept. God's not keeping a scorecard and at some point is going to even up the score with you for that one thing that you did, you know when. The good news of Christ's death is that Christ has made propitiation for our sins. We are no longer under wrath. We are under his favor. And by taking the penalty for sin and providing a way for our sins to be forgiven, Jesus has now set into motion events that will ultimately lead to death itself being destroyed forever. And what a great day that will be. And Paul, Paul calls the sting of death, he calls the sting of death sin, right? And he calls it that because it is sin that has caused death. And therefore, Jesus had to deal with sin to deliver us from death. Jesus also had to deal with sin to deliver us from a fear of death. And by his sacrificial death in our place, he was like a big brother with all his siblings, all right? And, and, and a bee comes out, right? And you've seen kids, when bees come out, right? They're just, they're, they're running for their lives, right? Uh, and let's pretend all the siblings uh, have, have really bad allergic reactions to bee stings, okay? And so the bee comes and everyone runs. Jesus is like the big brother who grabs the bee and lets it sting himself so that that stinger falls out and that his brothers and sisters have nothing else to fear. Jesus dealt with sin. He took the sting out of death. That bee is, yes, still flying around, but we need not fear it, church. This is what Jesus has done. And if this is what Jesus has done, then what does that mean for us we'll, we'll, in, our, in our fear of death, being delivered from our fear of death? Well, first it means that there is no need for us to live in a denial of death. We don't have to have our backs to it. We don't have to pretend like it's not there. Our, our lives should not be lived in such a way that Luther described where we're running backwards towards an open grave. We need not have our backs to this enemy. We can face and square up this enemy. And acknowledge this enemy because Christ came and died and took the sting for us. And there's lots of ways that this can look like, but I, th I think people who live in a denial of death, they have very short-sighted views of what it looks like to go and make disciples of the nations. I think they have a very short-sighted view of what it means for, for ministry and for evangelism and for the impact that God would want to, ha want to use them to have in his world. You see, our, our plan for making disciples should not be so short-sighted that we aren't planning for how this is going to go, go on and be carried out beyond our lifetime, right? We often, even as Christians, we live as if like we're not going to ever die, right? But no, we don't have to live in a denial of it. 
And therefore, we can be freed to have a generational and a long-term approach with an understanding that the mission will continue on past our lifetime. But Christians who live in a denial of death, they can only think about the here and now. They can't think about what happens after they're gone because they live in a denial that that will ever happen. But we've seen Christians throughout church history who have a long-term vision of discipleship. These are the ones that plant churches and who build hospitals and who start orphanages and who start schools and who start universities. And this is why we are passionate about church planting. There are quicker ways to kind of get discipleship going, but we have a long-term vision for the city of Franklin that God, by his grace, would, would use this body of believers and that it would have an impact on making disciples that make disciples that go beyond any of our lifetime in here. Because he has made propitiation, because he has dealt with sin, the sting of death, we need not live in a denial of death. Also, because he made propitiation for our sins, we need not fear dying and the accuser bringing any unforgiven sin into the presence of God. That should not be our fear, that, that the accuser is going to bring something, okay? Romans eight thirty three says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Right? The prosecutor has been uh, disarmed, right? He has no ammo. He has no secret sins of yours that God does not know about and Jesus did not pay for. And in Christ, we are now forgiven. And it is truly someone who lives a forgiven life that can be freed from a fear of death. A forgiven life is delivered from a fear of death. And this is what Jesus has done. Physical death will, yes, someday come, but there will be no sting. There will be no accusations brought against you. There will be no trial, but only the embrace of your heavenly Father welcoming you into his presence. That is what Jesus has done to free you from your fear of death. But what is he doing right now? Right? That's what Jesus has done. What is he doing right now to, fear you, to, to free you from your fear of death? Look back at Hebrews 2. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus Christ right now serves as our merciful and faithful high priest. And we're going to spend a few other sermons throughout Hebrews really diving into this idea of the position of the high priest. And so more of that is coming in, in Hebrews. But the original readers of this would have been very familiar with the concept of a high priest. The people knew that because of sin, they needed a mediator. They needed a go-between between God and mankind. They, they needed mercy, right? They needed someone to offer sacrifices and, and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, right? They knew this was the role of a high priest. And the Christians in this time that were first reading this, like they were being tempted to go back to the temple. The temple was actually still standing. There actually was a human high priest. This wasn't a theoretical, Jesus is like a high priest. The author is saying, no, like, that guy's not, and Jesus is, okay? And so don't go back to that sacrificial system. Don't go back to the temple. What we'll learn all throughout Hebrews is that what made the temple the temple was that the presence of God was there. And God's Spirit no longer dwells in a building. He dwells in His people. We are the temple. Next week, we're going to learn about how we are God's house. 
So don't go back to some human high priest who makes sacrifices. Those were merely shadows of the greater substance that was to come, and Christ is the substance. Christ is the perfect sacrifice, and Christ is the great high priest. And he's a merciful and a faithful, and we'll learn about a sympathetic high priest. You see, to be merciful, all right, to be merciful is not only to feel compassion, but it also means then kind of the ability and the desire to take action on that compassion to help alleviate some suffering. For example, uh, you watching, you know, a commercial or a, a something about, about opening up your eyes to poverty, right? I think we can all like sit there and feel maybe sad and compassionate about people being in poverty. But a merciful person actually takes action on that compassion. They have the ability and the desire to take action on it and to do something to alleviate that suffering. The reason that Jesus can be such a merciful and such a sympathetic high priest is because he understands what it's like to be human. Like if you watched a commercial about poverty and you had lived in like serious poverty, I'm going to guess like, hey, there's a little bit more like you're, you're, you're tracking with that, right? You're, you're in line with that. You're, you're motivated to go be compassionate and merciful. Jesus can be a merciful and sympathetic high priest because he understands what it's like to be human. He is the God-man. He put on flesh. He lived in this body. He faced the temptations and the hunger and the pain and all the emotions that we experience. He experienced. J.C. Ryle once wrote of him, he said, Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God mighty to save, but the Son of Man able to feel. He certainly is mighty to save, church but he's also the Son of Man right now, able to feel. You see, Jesus can be a merciful high priest because he has experienced much of what we have experienced. Uh, back uh, when I first started working uh, at the hospital, and I would see people that would come in uh, with complaints of dizziness, right? It's, it's, it's one of the more common complaints that people are dizzy. Uh, lots of things can, can cause that. Most are not very serious. There are some serious things. So, uh, you know, when I would first see people who were dizzy, uh, I would sort of kind of brush them off, right? Like just, uh, you know, if someone said, hey, I'm, I'm dizzy, I would respond with, well, like, stop that right? Just cut it out, right? You've probably been to a medical provider and, and, and listed a complaint, and they've said in an uncompassionate, unmerciful tone, well, just stop it. Just cut it out, all right? And so I would usually, you know, you kind of rule out the bad causes of the dizziness, and then you say, all right, let's get you out of here, right? Like, like we don't care anymore. You're going to be okay. Just go, you know, walk it off, rest, fluids and rest, right? That's what I say to everybody, right? Fluids and rest. But then three years ago, something happened, uh, when we first started gathering as a church, uh, I got dizzy, and I experienced vertigo, and it was awful, and it went on for about six months. It was like uh, not being able to get off a roller coaster for six months. I was constantly nauseous. I believe Britt was uh, pregnant at that time as well. She was nauseous, and we would often uh, complain to one another about our nausea. It was, uh, it was an awesome time and season in life for our marriage. Uh, we persevered. Um, but, man, it was, it was awful. Okay, flash forward. God allows me to recover from vertigo. The next person I saw with vertigo, you know how I acted? 
You got, you got vertigo? All right, all right. Come on, come on in here. All right, let's, let's, let's clear the rest of the schedule out. All right, let's, I'm going to, oh man, this is, this is awful. I know how that feels. You probably can't lay flat back. You probably can't turn your head. You probably can't check your blind spot when you're driving. Like, oh my goodness. And you're feeling nauseous all the time. Yes, I understand. Okay, here's what we're going to do. All right, you're going to do these maneuvers. I'm going to take you into a room. We're going to do these things. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But trust me, this is going to make you feel better. Here's the medication that you need. Here's the specialist I want you to go see. Here's some imaging to do. I was compassionate and I was merciful because I had experienced what that person had experienced. I I fear that oftentimes we view God and we view Jesus as kind of this out of touch like man upstairs that has no idea what we're dealing with that has no idea the emotions we struggle with, that has no idea about the temptations we face. But church, right now, Jesus Christ is our merciful high priest. And therefore, that underlying fear of death that sometimes show itself with with us being just obsessed with self-preservation and self-care, Like, we can be freed from being enslaved to preserving and caring for ourselves because we have Jesus, who's right now our merciful high priest. It's very freeing to go and see a medical provider who who you kind of, like, dump your problems on, and you know they actually care and are going to do something about it. All of a sudden now, it kind of takes that off your shoulders, right? Like, oh, this this guy's going to run with this. He's going to take care of this. The same is true when we come to Jesus, our merciful high priest. No longer do we feel like it's all up to us to preserve ourselves and to care for ourselves and to be merciful and compassionate to ourselves. No, we have a merciful high priest. When you think that no one else knows what you're going through, you are wrong. He has experienced the pain we've experienced, and he's merciful toward us even right now in our afflictions and even right now in our temptations. This Jesus was tempted as we are and now lives and is able to help those who are tempted. This is what Jesus is doing for you right now. He's serving you as a merciful high priest, helping you in times of temptation. But okay, what what is Jesus going to do in the future to deliver us from our fear of death? Well, listen, not only is Jesus our merciful high priest, he is also our faithful high priest meaning he's trustworthy, he's dependable. We can count on him. And his faithfulness is not just for today, but it will continue tomorrow as well, even if our faith might get weak and shaky at times. Paul, when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, he says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What a good word that is. For us whose faith fluctuates, being strong and weak, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. What a comfort that is to know that we can trust him, we can rely upon him, we can depend upon him both now and in the future. 
So church, shouldn't this dispel our fear of the unknown? And shouldn't this dispel our fear of the unfamiliar? Because the one who made the moon and the stars, the one who knows every hair on your head is faithfully interceding for you right now and he will faithfully intercede for you in the future. And so even in the unfamiliar, even in the unknown, Jesus remains faithful. Like, like we might be in a situation where we're not able to trust or rely or depend upon anything or anyone else. Everything might seem uncertain, but this is what we know for sure. His future faithfulness is certain. His future faithfulness will be familiar to you in unfamiliar times and seasons. And it's that future faithfulness that allows us to loosen the grip of the reins to find out that Jesus was already holding them and trust in his future faithfulness. It will be familiar to you when you step into the unknown, when you step into the unfamiliar that God might be calling you into. Well, what else will Jesus always do to deliver us from our fear of death? He will also always do this. He will always exceed our expectations and imaginations. All right? Some of you have some good imaginations in here. Some of you do not have good imaginations, okay? But we all have expectations, and he is going to exceed each and every one of them. No one in the future is ever going to be disappointed with heaven or the new heavens or the new earth. And if you are, like, you can come find me and and call me out that there was something that you're disappointed about. But what we know from Paul when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is the Christian hope, right? That our small imaginations, that our small expectations cannot even begin to fathom the glory and the pleasure and the joy of the world to come. The reason that some of us have this fear of missing out, right? The reason that some of us are quick to just like jump from commitments to commitment because we're chasing pleasure, fear of missing out on this pleasure before we die. The reason that we have that oftentimes is because we don't understand and we don't appreciate the the pleasure and the joy and the glory to come. We falsely assume that physical death is the end, and so therefore we better get all the pleasure we can before the end. The Bible says that death is not the end, but it is in fact the beginning of the real life to come. And Paul, he understood this when he wrote in Philippians 1.29, when he wrote, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's gain. When we close our eyes in this life, we will open them in the presence of the Lord. And church, that is gain. That is better. We can be sure that our life after death will be far greater than we can even imagine. That is something that Jesus will always do for us in the future to deliver us from our fear of death. This is something that we can also be sure of in the future. That whether in life or in death, we can be sure that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And I'd I'd like to read to you a little bit longer 
of a passage from Romans 8, 35 through 39. Paul writes to the Romans, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, may we not be enslaved to a fear of death because we know that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the southern tip of Africa, there's a piece of land that juts out into the ocean and it's called a a cape, right? And this cape for years, when it was first discovered, it gave sailors a lot of anxiety because there were certain water currents that kind of swirled around this cape in combination with some uh, bad weather that made it very dangerous to sail around this cape. There were many shipwrecks sailing around this cape, and it was initially named the Cape of Storms. The Cape of Storms. Sailors feared it. And it was the Cape of Storms until a captain finally came around that found a safe route through it. He found a a safe route through the treacherous waters and he mapped it out so that all the sailors that would follow after him knew that they had a safe uh, uh, rite of passage, a a safe safe passageway to kind of get to India and all the riches of the east. And so after he mapped it out and after the sailors found this safe passageway, they renamed the Cape the Cape of Good Hope. They renamed it the Cape of Good Hope because now there was great optimism around the fact that a passage had been found that would lead people to these newfound riches in the East. And church, Christ became one of us. He died for us in our place. He disarmed the enemy and he now serves us as our merciful and faithful high priest so that we might live a forgiven life delivered from the fear of death. And therefore now for the Christian, death is no longer a cape of storms. Death is no longer a cape that is to be feared and to be anxious about. No, death in Christ is a cape of good hope. That is a safe passageway to the riches of heaven. And so as we reflect on this word, I'd ask you guys just to bow your heads. I'm going to close in prayer. But before we do close in prayer, I'm going to ask you a few questions that I'd just ask, encourage you to ask the Spirit to search your heart and see if there's anything that the Lord is laying on your heart that you need to share with someone here today or with your city group or so first, how, how does Jesus need to deliver you from a fear of death this morning? Is there a, an underlying fear of death in your life that you are maybe not aware of? Have you lived in denial 
that your physical body would one day die? And how would you live differently if you weren't living in that denial? Are you fearful to face God because you're not sure if your sin has been forgiven in Christ? Have you been obsessed with self-preservation or self-care, not acknowledging that you have a merciful and faithful high priest? Have you been avoiding the unfamiliar places that God is calling you to, not trusting in his future faithfulness? Have you been enticed by the pleasures of this world and feared missing out on them, all because your imagination and your expectations of the life to come has been too small? Have you feared that in the moment that death comes for you, that you will be separated from the love of Christ and not welcomed into the full experience of it? Father, we ask for your help. Lord, help us be encouraged that Jesus has destroyed our enemy, that he's made propitiation for our sin, and that he intercedes for us right now, and that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no heart has imagined what you are preparing for those who love you. Father, we ask that you would deliver us from any fear of death that remains in our lives. Help us turn that over to you. Help us turn that over to our merciful and faithful high priest. And help us rest in the forgiven life that you have provided for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.